Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Hi, friends. Before we get started today, we wanted to ask you a big favor. One of the best ways you can help a podcast, any podcast, not just ours, is by leaving stars and reviews on Apple Podcasts. It increases our visibility in their magical algorithm and makes it much more likely that new listeners will see us and receive recommendations for us. So please help us convince the robots that we're fun to listen to. Thank you so much. On with the show. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're taking advantage of Anna's recent travels to Bulgaria. Yay! Uh, Yeah, we're going to talk about (laughs) the multiple cultures and empires that have called Bulgaria home throughout history and get into some of the folklore and more recent history of the region as well. Mm -hmm. But first, we're going to start off very early indeed. Some of the very first Homo sapiens to make their way out of Africa and head west towards Europe ended up in Bulgaria. I mean, it wasn't Bulgaria at the time, but specifically at a cave site called Bacokiro, which is where the oldest human remains in Bulgaria have been found, dating to around 46,000 years ago. So I'm going to read an excerpt from the webpage of the research team at the Max Planck Institute Department of Human Evolution, which is probably really in German and about 20 words longer. Uh, But they're the ones who are currently investigating the site. So I'll read this and then we can translate from archaeology speak. Quote, one of the more important European initial UP assemblages in Europe is that of layer 11 at Bacokiru. Parentheses. Is that is UP upper Paleolithic or is it up? As in, we went up there from Africa. Oh, I see. I see. Uh, UP is upper Paleolithic? Yeah, it is. It is. Okay, thanks. <laughs> it's like, it can be what you want it to be, bud. <laughs> no, it can't. Really, it's, no, it can't. It really can, super can't. That's not this how assemblage, <laughs> This assemblage, which has been called Bachukirian, contains elements of both the middle and the upper Paleolithic, though most placed it in the latter. Latter, not the ladder. I should have learned to enunciate. The technology is Levallois, and retouched points are common, but there are also Upper Paleolithic types, and the use of non-local raw materials represents a complete break from the Middle Paleolithic, end quote. So, there are these tools at Bachokiro, stone tools, that have been given their own special name, Bachokirian, named for the site. So we've talked about this before, where there's a type site for a particular type of assemblage, where you name it after the place where it's first found, or at least first recognized. There are aspects of these tools that are very similar to tools that Neanderthals definitely made. So Levallois is a name for a suite of tool types that are common to Neanderthal sites across Europe. This is a, quote, prepared core end quote technique basically yes did you um, have a thought oh right yeah you can see me that's right <laughs> so levelois 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 ouais. levelois is um is Suleiman neanderthal 
What? Oh, so so I was like, the the Neil Diamond song, Suleiman? Is it only Neanderthals? So is it like an exclusively Neanderthal um, tradition or is it unclear? You see it... uh, to me, it's unclear. Okay. Um, to someone who actually studies lithics, it's probably much more clear. But my understanding is that Levallois is something that you see only in Neanderthal assemblages, although you do also see elements of it in modern human assemblages. Now, I may have that a little bit wrong where Levallois is much more common than I think. But okay, my... but it's one that we readily associate with um, Neanderthals. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the, the reason that it is distinctive, like why is it its own tool type? It's because, um, it differs from, um, it differs from other earlier Neanderthal tool technologies, uh, in that it's a prepared core technique. So instead of using a chunk of, um, whatever stone you're working with, so flint, obsidian, chert, whatever, anything like that, instead of just using a chunk of that, knocking pieces off it until it is shaped and sharpened the way you want, and then using that as a tool, what they're doing is it's a prepared core technique. So it starts with a a core of material, again, flint, chert, or obsidian, and then the toolmaker deliberately shapes this block of stone that acts as a blank. So by striking pieces off the edges until it's shaped kind of like a turtle shell. So it's almost like a little puck of rock flat on the bottom. And then there's a little curve on top Okay, and it's all kind of geometrically, you know, flaked off. And then that shape you can more readily control the shape of the flakes because the core is prepared. And so you can knock regular little pieces off of that core. Kind of like you can, you say like, Oh, I need a a small piece of Flint for something. And you knock it off of your prepared core and you can, because it is angled in a way that you have prepared, um, you can more easily control how much force you use and you can easily control the size and shape of the pieces that come off. So how big is this, so is this, it varies. So, okay. But is it big enough that like, it's, it's sort of like, oh, I need to, it's, I don't it's know, portable. prepare this, prepare this skin. Uh, but I lost my, lost my little sharp bit of flint. I'm going to go yeah. knock off another one kind of thing. And you just go over yeah, and it's you knock like it that. off. And it's, it can be either like portable, like kind of hand sized. So you could have it with you if you're going out to, to hunt or something. Right. And so you have your little tool blanks. So in case you sure. do lose your sharp piece of flint, you can just kind of knock off a new one. So you're walking or, yeah. Or it can be bigger and you can kind of it's your that's your your home office piece. <laughs> it's just there when you need it, but it stays in one place. That's my understanding. OK. <laughs> this is OK. More more material in this than I thought. <laughs> I- <laughs> but the, the point is that. Up until the core is exhausted, meaning like you've you've sort of used it up past its, you know, up to its point of usefulness. Um, I feel that. <laughs> um, basically, you can if you are a skillful flint napper, you can get a series of regularly sized, you know, kind of more or less uniform bits off of this prepared core. Back to Bulgaria. These Bachokirian tools we should really have a lithics person on sometime very soon. So I can stop sounding like such a dumb dumb. And they'll, and they'll, and then our listeners can stop knocking off a, knocking off a piece off the old tweet core. Sure. 
<laughs> Wait, really? Oh, you jammed that into place. Yep. <laughs> These Bachokirian tools have traits that match earlier Neanderthal tools, but there are also in the same site and even in the same layer, Upper Paleolithic or positively human-made, homo sapiens-made tools. Plus, it seems like the raw materials for these tools were brought in from farther away, which is something you see much less with Neanderthals, not into imported materials. So this is super cool because it might represent any number of scenarios. So were Neanderthals there first, and then modern humans arrived as well, and maybe they weren't necessarily living at Bachacura at the same time, but maybe their times of living there kind of overlapped a little bit, or just the material got mixed in the in the layer? Or was it just modern humans showing up and incorporating the Levallois toolmaking technique into their own repertoire? Were they already using the Levallois toolmaking technique? Whatever the case, this site is sort of right on the main passageway from Africa, north and west into Europe. So it represents some of the very earliest Homo sapiens populations on their way to populate the rest of the world, which is sort of neat to think about. Yeah. There are also a lot of bone implements in the material from Bachokiru, including several pendants made from animal teeth. Um, mostly there's some bear, there's some deer... I think there might have been horse. I have seen photos of them. Um, of horses? That, I have seen photos of horses, but I've also seen photos of the pendants. Okay. And that, they're really interesting because more than one of them is a tooth that's really, really worn down. Like there's almost no tooth left. And um, they seem to have polish on them that suggests rubbing against like hide or something, something that would burnish one little facet hmm. on the tooth. They seem to have been maybe sewn on to, to something or maybe just worn in a way that would have them rubbing against clothing for a while. So hmm. that's neat. Yeah. Um, and so self-adornment, making jewelry and, and using jewelry or not, you know, jewelry is kind of a loaded word, but just making things that aren't entirely functional. Um, self-adornment and art and abstract thinking something that Neanderthals almost certainly did based on evidence of ochre covered shells in Northern Africa and some other evidence, but there's very little in the way of Neanderthal jewelry preserved. Okay. So, so humans were kicking it in Bulgaria from quite early on, like mm. the earliest on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, moving it forward. Into, Briskly. Into history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Into the realm of history. Um, one of the most famous early groups from this area, being now Bulgaria, to be historically recorded shows up in the writings of Herodotus and Xenophon, your friends and mine. Indeed. Um, these were the Thracians. Um, yeah, the Thracians or also the, the Thra Thracian Bithynians. Yes. So sort of same, same. Um, well, it gets confusing. It gets very confusing, but... But, I mean, this is Herodotus we're talking about, so... Yeah, well... Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, there were the Thracians, uh, but there wasn't <laughs> just one group of Thracians, but rather lots of different tribes led by various kings during the Bronze Age, this being around 1500 BCE, which is about a thousand years before our boy wrote the histories. Right. So he's, so, uh, it's not fresh, not, not fresh. Um, but the Thracians were eventually expelled or absorbed or called themselves something else by Greek, Persian and Roman colonies. But traces of their culture remain in their monuments devoted to horse worship Woo. and in the folk tradition of Kukeri that still survives in Southwestern Bulgaria. And we'll come back to the, to the Kukeri because yes, they're I'm very excited. Oh, um, I love them. 
So um, I'm now going to read to you from book five of the histories of Herodotus, um, which na- which marks the beginning of the wars between the Persians and the Greeks. Ever heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> We're bringing a weird energy today. This it's is fine. weird. <laughs> yeah. So the Thracians are the most powerful people in the world, except, of course, the Indians. People in India. Yeah, no, I knew like he meant that, but it's just like all of them? Yeah. Or like specific groups? I mean, okay. also think about India is very far away. So like the further you get away from the center from which you're writing, right. um, the murkier the, things The vaguer get. you get. Yeah, yeah, that's, I wanted to make sure that it yeah. was that and not he just- He straight up means like the all Indians. Of it. Okay, like, all like of them. The Indians that um, Alexander eventually gets to. Right. And uh, it goes great for him. I mean, it could go better. Yeah. He didn't die there. Um, No, so way out there. Alexandria Escate, which is what I call my metro stop, because it certainly feels like the furthest from DC. (laughs) (laughs) That is a joke for me and me alone every day on the metro. The Thracians are the most powerful people in the world, except, of course, the Indians. And if they had one head or were agreed among themselves, it is my belief that their match could not be found anywhere and that they would very far surpass all other nations. But such union is impossible for them, and there are no means of ever bringing it about. Herein, therefore, consists their weaknesses. Ah, <laughs> oh, God, I love this guy. Um, the Thracians bear many names in the different regions of their country, but all of them have usages, have like usages in every respect, excepting only the Getai, the Trousi, and those who dwell above the people of Creston. Creston sounds like a suburb. Uh, I like, think it is. <laughs> <laughs> I have to drive all the way out to Creston. Um now the manners and customs of the Getai, who believe in their immortality, I have already spoken of. Okay. Okay, Herodotus. Um, the Trousi in all else resemble the other Thracians, but have customs at births and deaths, which I will now describe. When a child is born, all its kindred sit round sit round about it in a circle and weep for the woes it will have to undergo now that it has come into the world, making mention of every ill that falls to the lot of humankind. When on the other hand, a man has died, they bury him with laughter and rejoicings and that now he is free from a host of sufferings and enjoys the completest happiness. Can I ask a question? Yes. Is this more likely to be Herodotus kind of uh, getting like fifth hand information and just writing that or is he going wow these people are backwards or both because it's like when a baby's born they're all sad when a man dies they're jazzed about it this is his his um his bit yeah it's like be like this (laughs) greeks that is actually what the history says it's just an extended set of him being like Greeks be like this. Persians be like this. Um, <laughs> okay. And it, All right. it ages as well as that bit has. Yeah. But no, only. I'm still making me chuckle. <laughs> All um, right. T- take yeah, me to so Creston. It, it could be it could, <laughs> on the silver line to Creston. Yeah. No, you make a very good point. It, it, I do? It, yeah. That it, <laughs> it could be that like the, you know, 800th hand information is, it could be like a, like a pejorative trope about yeah. these people that he then 
Right. So it could Topsy be both. Turvy. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, but they yeah. aren't like far enough. They aren't far enough out of the like on the periphery to like be doing the like truly crazy stuff that he says people do. Um. Okay. Like they like just the, yeah like. Because, you know, it's out in India where you've got the giant ants that mine for gold. <laughs> oh, I forgot about the giant ants. Yeah. 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 You got the, you that's got the, a callback. The, the flying snakes in Arabia. Oh, like, man. That's, that's further Flying away. snakes of Arabia. That book in your bathroom. <laughs> that book in my bathroom. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is, this is like some light stereotyping mm-hmm. for, by mm-hmm. his standards. Um, but... The Thracians who live above the Christonians observe the following customs. Each man among them has several wives, and no sooner does a man die than a sharp contest ensues among the wives upon the question which of them all the husband loved most tenderly. The friends of each eagerly plead on her behalf, and she to whom the honor is adjudged, after receiving the praises of both men and women, is slain over the grave by the hand of her next of kin, and then buried with her husband. The others are sorely grieved, for nothing is considered such a disgrace." Hmm. Huh. The Thracians who do not belong to these tribes have the customs which follow. They sell their children to traders. <laughs> Yikes. Traders, um, we, tra- sh- we should say. Yeah, not, not like traitors. Not traitors. No, like like Tuscan Raiders types. <laughs> Thank you. I know that's a wiki. No, I know it's a wiki. Right, no, that's a rock sound. I know. Uh. It's the, it's the, yeah, it's yeah. that. Yeah. Great. Um, on their... <laughs> On their maidens, they keep no watch, but leave them altogether free. While in the conduct of their wives, they keep a most strict watch. Brides are purchased of their parents for large sums of money. Tattooing among them marks noble birth and the want of it low birth. To be idle is accounted the most honorable thing and to be a tiller of the ground the most dishonorable. To live by war and plunder is of all things the most glorious. These are the most remarkable of their customs. It's a little bit pearl clutchy. Of Herodotus, just oh. like, ooh! Yeah, oh, death. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I know that's kind of his thing, but I'm just saying, like, wow. Yeah. Um, the gods which they worship are but three. Mars, Bacchus, and Diane. <laughs> I know it's like that, it's an abbreviation of, or not abbreviation, it's a shortened form of Diana, but like, <laughs> just and also, and Nicole. I know. Like, <laughs> Um, their kings, however, unlike the rest of the citizens, worship Mercury more than any other god, always swearing by his name and declaring that they are themselves sprung from him. Um, also, please, please be mindful, dear listener, that um, the Greeks and like Herodotus especially had a real habit of like, well, if you had, if you if you are a, um, if you listen to our Dirt After Dark we talked about um, having Baal Cronus. They so, smush gods together, and yeah, we're going to talk about so, that in, in about two minutes. Yeah, so that's so it's they didn't really they had their own gods, but the Greeks are like, oh, same, same, this god because he's got similar traits. Yeah, they they use their own names for for foreign gods because they could understand that better. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a point of reference. <laughs> yeah. Um, their wealthy ones are buried in the following fashion. The body is laid out for three days, and during this time they kill victims of all kinds and feast upon them, after first bewailing the departed. I, okay. <laughs> then they either burn the body or else bury it in the ground. 
Lastly, cool. they raise a mound over the grave and hold games of all sorts, wherein the single combat is awarded the highest prize. Such is the mode of burial among Thracians. I mean, there is one thing in that that I know to be true, which is the raising of burial mounds, because about an hour and a half or so outside Sofia, the, the capital of Bulgaria, there are just open plains full of these mounds, like hundreds. Are they called and Kurgans there? I don't remember. Is that a, I, I mean, it's um. that's a, a, I guess a Russian term. Yeah. Um, and I that, don't remember because I, I didn't actually, I was told of these. I did <laughs> not get to go on this that? particular field yeah. trip. But like they're, yeah. Burial uh, mounds. But I've seen pictures. I saw pictures. And some of them you can walk into because they've been, unfortunately, they were looted at some time in the in the past. But so it's basically just these passage tombs. And it's very cool, apparently. Yeah. Again, didn't get to go on that field trip. But I did get to go to the Sofia Archaeology Museum. And it was great. And uh, there's no, well, <laughs> that's it. That's my section. <laughs> that's, that's all I got notes for. No, no, I just, I wanted to say that the Thracian art and material that was there in the museum was just breathtaking. So I want to, I'm going to, um, I put up a big collection of photos from the archaeology museum up on Instagram and Facebook a little while ago. But when this episode comes out, I will sort of repost those because, uh, and I'll, I'll do it with a little bit more explanation for each one, but my favorite one is maybe sort of the the star piece in that museum's collection, which is uh, a death mask or funeral mask of a Thracian king. And it's just, it's, it's cast bronze and it's really lifelike and the eyes are made of glass paste. So like, I mean, it's solid. Like it's, it was paste when it was formed. Like you can basically make kind of a clay out of glass frit, like glass powder. And then it sets and the eyes look really lifelike. Like they're, they're, these hazel eyes with the whites and everything. Um, it's really beautiful. But so that sounds haunted AF. <laughs> it was no, it was I don't think it was I think it was very um I think it looks very very noble. I mean I guess I, fearsome. I, I don't think that haunted and noble are mutually exclusive, but that sounds like something that would watch you walk by. No, the eyes don't fall well, yeah, I don't know. You don't, I don't know. know. I don't remember. Um <laughs> to to um i also i have a magnet of that particular piece on my fridge but it's weirdly holographic like on purpose so i think that magnet is haunted i don't think the sculpture itself is haunted but i think the magnet definitely is because it's like that's what's freaking your cat out (laughs) no it's just like not the eyes that follow you it's like parts of the rest of the face that follow you around the room and he's saying, I'm sprung from Mercury. He may have said that. I don't know. Do you know what I looked up? Because. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah. Well, the because the Thracians are referred to as the Thraki right, in in Greek or Thrax. I was like, is this related to a Game of Thrones? Turns out, no, it's not. They're based on the Scythians. Well, they're based on the Scythians and their language is based on, uh, on a couple, a couple yeah, Semitic yeah. languages and yep. the whole, the whole vibe uncool. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I did, but I, you know, just in case oh, our, yeah. our listeners are wondering, no, no, they're not related anyway. So 
I know that, <laughs> that a few minutes ago, Herodotus said that the Thracians worshipped Bacchus, but that's not entirely true. As Amber mentioned, they had their own thing going on, and then the Greeks were like, but that's like this thing that I know better. So that works for me. So Bacchus, for the Thracians, was Zagreus, sort of a hybrid between lots of different deities, sort of, not really. Um, because he was just like a deity in his own right. Yeah, yeah, he like, was his own yeah. thing. But people have made connections to other deities because, as it turns out, lots of God stories have really similar aspects. Mm. Timothy Gantz, a noted classical scholar, suggested that Zagreus, who originally was maybe the son of Hades and Persephone, later merged with the Orphic Dionysus, the son of Zeus and Persephone. And Zeus took the form of a snake to get it on with Persephone, which is totally normal and cool. Uh, so, yeah. Um, Remember that the- cartoon that I showed you? It was a comic about like Persephone and Hades and he like yeah put something in her drink and yeah not a good vibe <laughs> I'm like no Mm-mm. we don't need to talk about the the weirdness of modern takes on mythology because we have the real thing so here we go <laughs> buckle up Zeus's intentions were for Zagreus to succeed him in the throne, but Hera, who was furious for her husband's infidelity because when was she not, asked the Titans to kill the boy. While Zagreus was playing with his toys, the Titans tried to capture him. He evaded them by taking various animal forms. He eventually took the form of a bull before the Titans seized him, killed him, and ate him. The myth continues with Zeus realizing what happened and striking the Titans with a thunderbolt. The Titans were instantly turned to ashes. From those ashes, which were a mixture of the vile bodies of the Titans and the holy body of Zagreus, arose the humans, thus explaining why they are both good and evil, each individual containing a bit of both kindness and evil. Persephone managed to find Zagreus's heart, which was still beating, Wow! and Zeus placed it into the body of the mortal woman Semele. Semele gave birth to Zagreus again. So that's his story. And he was, Zagreus was also associated with cults of Dionysus and the Dionysian mysteries, which maybe need their own episode because I don't know if that would be a long enough episode because a lot of it is because they were mysteries. The things people know about (laughs) them were like, maybe it was this. It was drugs. Basically. (laughs) They washed a statue. That's the one I know about. There's a yeah. there's some statue washing. A lot of them are just like, oh, they got high and yeah. like wanted to kick Danced it around. in the absence of their extremely like oppressive husbands. Yeah. So they did it underground and danced around. Sounds yeah. chill. Uh, but in any case, to the Thracians and still today, uh, he was most certainly a god of wine. And Bulgarian wineries today still give a nod to that tradition and to the long history of Bulgarian slash Thracian winemaking. And if you want to know more about that, you can go to bullwine.com. Bull is in Bulgarian. It was an interesting choice of uh, syllables to use. So from bullwine.com, quote, Wine has been cherished in these lands ever since the time of the Thracians, who first inhabited the area. They used it not only as a drink on the table, (laughs) but also for many of their religious rituals. They believed that through wine, they were reaching their gods. Hey, I get it. (laughs) Through wine, all is possible. The ancient (laughs) Greek god Dionysus and his Thracian analog Zagreus were worshipped by the Thracians as gods of wine and happiness. Evidence for the ancient ancient Thracian traditions in wine production and consumption are the magnificent Thracian treasures, treasures, which most often consists of wine sets and accessories. I saw many of those in the museum. They're very beautiful, these bronze 
uh, craters and things, but I don't know the Thracian word for what they are. Even Homer, that well, definitely... Thracian, Thracians were ahistoric, right? We don't know yeah. what anything that they called it. No, I, no I, don't, I don't think we do. Even Homer often mentioned the superior qualities of the Thracian wines in his works. After the establishment of the Bulgarian state in the 7th century CE, these traditions in winemaking were inherited, preserved, and continued. Many medieval travelers who traveled across the Bulgarian lands mentioned the qualities of the various wines they have tasted on their way. So Thracians, art, horses, wine, kings, mysteries. While we all process that roller coaster, we're going to jump into a brief break for some ads. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. We're back. Bulgaria. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you just came back from playing outside and you yelled to your mom. Like the door closes like... <laughs> Can we have a sandwich? Yeah. Bulgaria has had quite the series of, shall we say, reworkings over the centuries. The Thracians, as I mentioned, were eventually conquered or absorbed into the Roman Empire. In the capital city of Sofia, when you walk around, when you walk underground to catch the metro, you can still walk on the preserved streets of the ancient Roman city, Serdica. The stones are polished to a high gloss by centuries of foot traffic. Anna did not expect this and almost fell right <laughs> on her butt during a walking tour. It was really slippery. <laughs> it was completely, it's not like it was wet and slippery. I was just like, oh. <laughs> After the Romans, the Ottoman Empire claimed the region in the late 14th century CE. They, they made it into the core of Romalia, or Roman province, which encompassed the Balkan section of the Ottoman Empire. It was the richest Ottoman region and also the most ethnically varied. Religious communities were organized into non-territorial autonomies or millets. Yeah, or not the, the, I, I don't think it's related to the grain. I don't know. Confusing. It's not like a, not like a millet or something. I, it could be a millet, but let's just call millet? it millet. Uh, a millet, a millet. Mainly mm -hmm. from Armenian monophysites, Judaists, and Orthodox Christians. Muslims were also grouped into their own millet of Islam. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of pressure to convert non-Muslims, but there were privileges, uh, mainly being like lower taxes and stuff, for Muslims in Bulgaria. 
Mm-hmm. Um, the present-day Bulgarian nation-state was created in 1878 as a result of numerous Russian forays into the Balkans aimed at securing the Ottoman ca- capital of Constantinia for the Tsar. In order to implement their plan of de-Islamizing, de-Islamizing this new Bulgaria, <laughs> the Russian occupying forces drew at the long-established imperial policy of expelling Muslims or forcibly converting them to Christianity and destroying Ew. so-called Muslim cities to be, rebe- to be rebuilt in a modern, by which they mean Christian, and progressive, by which they mean Western, fashion. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. Yep. And you can really see this in Sofia. The city started off as an ancient Roman one. And then every time a new group took power, everything got raised to the ground and rebuilt on top of. So there's all this archaeology preserved throughout the city. Um, you can go look at the Roman layers under the Ottoman layers, under the streets built during the rise of socialism. It's all very, very cool. And it's this cool mis- mishmash because you'll go into these sort of socialist big like cement block buildings they're not i mean they're nice looking buildings but you go into these big very modern looking buildings and they'll have this big open courtyard and it's like oh there's a tiny little medieval church in there what's that doing there oh well (laughs) so this was so like given its location and given its um occupation uh by like the ottoman empire and all of that um were there like hammams yeah so did you go see a hammam I wish I had. But here's the thing. When the Ottoman Empire was dissolved and uh, Sofia became uh, a officially Bulgarian state, um, most of the hammams were eventually closed because they weren't necessarily actively destroyed. Like there wasn't this kind of anti-Muslim hammam destroying sentiment necessarily, but um, the most most of the Muslim population at this point left. And so the really cool thing about Sofia is that it sits right on all of this uh, geothermal, geothermally heated water. And oh. lots of Bulgaria does. Um, there are spas elsewhere. So there's lots of uh, geothermal spas outside of Sofia. But I think every hammam in the city of Sofia is now closed. But Um, There is this one spot in the town center and it's right outside a building that what used to be a bathhouse, but is now a museum, like a historical museum. Um, There is a public series of maybe 20 taps or so that are just constantly running water. And that water is about 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, It's it's very. And when I was visiting, uh, this was part of the walking tour that I took in Sofia. And uh, when I was visiting, it was an extremely chilly day. And so I stuck my little paws under that hot water and it felt so nice. But so it's drinkable water, it's mineral water. And a lot of people kind of think of it as having healthful properties. And so they'll come, uh, folks will come on weekends with like wagons with giant jugs, like these big plastic jugs, and they'll fill up their water for the week. Or, you know, if you have a water bottle with you and it's a cold day, you can fill up that hot water bottle and stick it down your jacket. Keeps your keeps your body nice and warm. But it keeps I, you warm on your on your falling tour. <laughs> it was only a slipping and falling tour. It was almost one time. I did very well. I walked very well for the rest of it. <laughs> it's just that one, that one little bit. No, I um I sort of wish I had gotten the opportunity to do a, a geothermal bath because I think that would have been really nice. But sadly, uh, there are no 
to my knowledge, there are no open hammams in Sofia. Okay. Well, and it could be that the the departure of the hammams and, like in other parts of the post-Ottoman world, um, they closed because it was uh, something that was associated with Ottoman rule and, and yeah. Ottoman subjugation. So it's, it's not... They'll be like, yeah, sure. Like I went there and whatever, but like, we're not Turkish. We're not Ottoman. Like we don't need that. And so it can be kind of politically motivated. I bet um, it was a big part of that. Our our guide also said like at this point um, during the kind of transfer to socialism, uh, most people started to have showers or baths in their apartments anyway. And so yeah. needing to go out to the bathhouse wasn't necessarily, it had been, you know, a big social activity, but also yeah. it had been kind of a necessity if you didn't have your own bathing facility in your yeah. in, where you lived, you need to you got to get a bath. But uh, yeah. yeah, most people started to have um, in uh, in home baths. Yeah. So um, another particular historical example of what we might call politically motivated building destruction um, <laughs> happened in 1925 CE. Uh, yes. The St. Nadelia church bombing. Um, so this bombing was carried out on the 16th of April, 1925, when a group of the Bulgarian Communist Party, the BCP, uh, blew up the church's roof during the funeral service of General Konstantin Georgiev, who had been killed in a previous communist assault. It's quite the statement. Well, this was a specifically because uh, they knew that a lot of high high powered oh, no, officials like, would be there. Yeah, right. Um, yep. So 200 people, mainly from the country's political and military elite, were killed in the attack and around 500 were injured. Um, the main goal of the bombing, though, was an assassination attempt on the king, King Boris III. Mm. Um, he, however, was late to the funeral and was not present present when the bomb detonated. Yeah. Um, so after this, the church was restored and still stands in the center of Sofia today. Yeah, you can see it in historical photographs and it has a different shape <laughs> than it used to. There's like a tower in the historical photographs that is not there now. It's sort of differently arranged. Um, okay, but maybe my favorite thing that I experienced in Bulgaria, besides all of the cheese, which I consumed, was the festival of the And you, you can learn more about it on bullcheese.com. Bullcheese.com. <laughs> Bulls don't make cheese. It only cows. <laughs> so the festival of the Kukeri. Every year in January and February, depending on the region, in towns and villages around the country, Bulgarians and foreign guests like me <laughs> gather to enjoy this festival, which is descended from folk traditions of the Thracians. And it's related to the celebration of the beginning of a new agricultural year related to the plowing of fields and the passing of winter and the arrival of summer fertility. Traditionally, only men dress up as the kukeri. That is plural. The singular is kuker. But during the festival, I saw there were definitely women and girls participating too. All ages, all sexes. And these big hairy spirits are the protagonists in this ancient mystery. They form a procession through the streets and perform ritual dances dressed in their handmade costumes, which I want to relate to Muppets, but that is sort of, um, it doesn't do them justice. But they're these big hairy tromping characters and I love them. Um, the scarier the outfit, the better. And the goal of the whole rite is to chase away the evil spirits of winter. Get out of here. 
It's cold. Is that why SpongeBob was there? The eldritch horror that was SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> yeah. Uh, remi- remind me to put that specific photo because there's, you know, there are I all mean, of these elements of, I know, <laughs> but there are all these elements of this ancient folk tradition, but then also, you know, stuff gets woven in like, but what if giant SpongeBob? What if there was a giant SpongeBob to help chase away the cold? It's like, I feel warmer. <laughs> In some regions of the country, the Kukeri groups act out mini plays. And that was very much um, what I saw. There was sort of these pageants. Every member of the group is assigned a specific role in the story. The king, the granny, the horse, the bear, etc. Everything in the play is grotesque and supposed to make the spectators laugh. There's often also a bit of rakia drinking involved, and it's very rowdy and joyous and fun. So what I saw was this big festival in a town, maybe like 45 minutes outside Sofia. And it was just all the local groups doing their version of this particular pageant. And so it went on for hours with just like <laughs> these different groups, like lined up for maybe, a, I don't know, a mile at least down the street. And each group would get their turn and they kind of chomp, 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 chomp up to the the main like spectator area. And they would have this sort of display. And a lot of the common elements were a traditional Bulgarian wedding, which if you've seen, and I'm going to, I don't want to uh, equate Greek and Bulgarian customs because both Greeks and Bulgarians will get very salty if you do that. But if you've ever seen, which might be more likely a Greek traditional wedding with the the costumes and the dancing, it was very, very similar to that. Obviously, it's its own unique and special and beautiful tradition. And I'm not saying Greeks and Bulgarians are the same. Well, since I've never seen either. Um, <laughs> it was, it's, uh, Still you know, honestly, but honestly, they, they did the horror. Like they straight up did the the step, step, kick, step, step, kick. The, the Jewish wedding dance. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, maybe what? that's just a wedding dance everywhere. <laughs> But it was a traditional Bulgarian wedding that was sort of acted out. So there was a bride and groom. There was a drunken priest that like that was part of his deal. Um, there's always there was a horse. There was a bear. Yeah. And the, well, donkeys, mostly donkeys. And they were very sweet. And there were people dressed as bears. Yes. Not real bears. Uh, and what else was there? There was uh, there's a lot of uh, men dressed as old ladies, which is always fun. And um <laughs> Yeah. And then and then the, the kukeri themselves, which are these big, tall, hairy spirits. So symbolically, um, the actors in the in the pageant uh, will act out a wedding or some aspect of sowing or harvesting and other rituals kind of meant to both um, preserve the natural order, but also just kind of show like this is what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the costumes, the, the kukeri costumes consist of these Big masks made of goat hair, leather, and wood. They sometimes take animalistic forms. Otherwise, they're just these big, hairy, kind of yeti-shaped monsters. Sometimes they have really, really tall heads. Like, it's these big, blocky bodies. And then, like, these straight-up tall cylinder heads. So, um, and, there is... Mm-hmm. What do, I think this is um, This is part of the... This is a Jim Henson creator... Create, Jim Henson creature. The one that's just like legs and then like a body. It's like this big red guy, this big red furry guy. Do you know who I'm talking about? His name is, um, his name is Sweetheart? Sweet, Sweetums. His name is Sweetums. Yeah. So it's like that, that, but like. It's that energy. It's very much that energy where it's like big and threatening, but actually really they're there to protect you. Yeah. And you're just like, where's your head? Where are your limbs? 
What's going on? Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. No, it's so cool. Um, the one that I saw was actually genuinely scary, which it was had the kukari body and a really long neck and then just like straight up goat's head, like, like a black goat's head with nope. the big horns. And I was like, miss <gasps> me with that. Yep. Um, and the, the kukari costumes can come in different colors. Red represents fertility, sun, and fire. Black stands for earth, and white stands for water and light. So it's a lot of like black and brown and white goat's hair. It's usually goat hair that's used. And when people have been dancing and sweating in slightly damp weather, wearing goat hide costumes, there's a very particular smell associated with that. So it smells like goats. Sure does. It smells like goats. <laughs> yep. Each costume also. Uh, can have a leather belt around it, uh, around the waist with these big old copper bells that, uh, basically cowbells, and they make this big, scary clanking noise, which again, scaring away the evil spirits of, of winter. As the tradition requires, every member of the Kukeri group must have a costume of his or her own, and a costume is either inherited or sewn by its owner. The same goes for the bells, which are usually handed down over generations, and some of the bells can weigh up to 220 pounds. Like a total of an extra 220 pounds that you're dancing around with. But also these costumes are leather and very heavy. So the, the the dances that they do in them are really active. Like it's a lot of like swinging and bouncing and like kind of loping from side to side. So the fact mm-hmm. that they're doing this in like 200 plus pound costumes, just like, wow. wow. I bet the, I bet the Rikia helps though. It's like, I'm invincible. <laughs> um, the masks that go with this are usually constructed from wood and covered in colorful yarn threads, fur, animal teeth, beads, and horns. Historically, the Kukari monsters used to go from door to door and perform their magical dances in front of the hosts. Very much like that, what's that, that Welsh tradition of, um, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's, it's spelled Mary Lude. Mari Thud, maybe. Oh, it's, the it's horse that on a stick. The horse head on a stick. That's like, hey, yeah. what's up? I need to sing riddles. And if you don't <laughs> sing a better riddle, I'm going to come inside your house. Yeah, it's kind of like that vibe. But uh, now that that's sort of going away. And instead, the Kukari monsters are typically just at big festivals and specially organized events. Incidentally, with lots of people selling donuts. And nice. it smells, it's like smells like goat and donuts it's like a very wholesome farm smell um all right so, <laughs> so go ahead and grab a donut and we'll be right back after another quick ad break This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. 
So I kind of wanted to just end up, you know, this has very much been a little bit of a self-indulgent episode on my part. I wanted to share things that I learned about Bulgarian history and archaeology and culture, but yeah, it's, yeah it, I will admit that it was a big part of like, here's what I did on my winter break. So I kind of wanted to finish up, first of all, so that you could also um, contribute some travel tips, Amber, but also like we don't really talk about, you know, we talk about archaeology and anthropology from kind of a more research background, from more of a sort of armchair learning kind of background. And we don't often get the chance to talk about how to experience these different cultures when you actually go to the places that they're from. Right. So I think Amber, you're, you're, you're the more well-traveled of our two people. You've been, I think you've definitely been to more places than I have, but I just kind of wanted to have a loosey goosey kind of little chat about traveling in other countries or, you know, within other cultures and how people who don't belong to those cultures necessarily can respectfully, but, you know, as thoroughly as possible, really take in and enjoy these experiences. So, yeah, I just, I just kind of wanted to talk about like, what were your experiences? You've, you've been to, let's see, where were you? You went to Belize, you went to somewhere (laughs) in Indonesia. Where'd you go? Tell Um, us, tell us about where you have gone. Where have I been? Um, well, so I've been, I've been to a, a handful of places. I've been lucky in the last few years. Um, I started out the first place that I ever went. So I, this was like, no, probably maybe the second, third time I had ever been on a plane was when I went to the UAE for uh, field season my junior year. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think before that I had been to San Diego <laughs> and that was like, Mm. The extent of my travel. Um, So, yeah. So I, as people who listen know, um, I excavated in the UAE and Oman. And then I um, did a little bit. I I did a short term thing um, in in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. Yeah, we talked about your work with the ossuaries. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I did I did those things in school. Um, And then I since I've been I went to Uzbekistan. um, I've seen a couple places in Europe as of like last year, finally. Um, But I yeah, I in the last couple of years, I went to Belize and I went to Malaysia and Malaysia that was it yeah yes and and then I've also worked in Morocco um and then I've gotten back to Morocco for fun and so the thing the real three line of all of these is (laughs) I either was um I've either traveled with um like someone who with a team yeah um and definitely with um, at least one person who really, 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 really knows the place we're in, or I've traveled entirely alone. Um, that was the, that was the <laughs> case in, um, a completely with, binary travel strategy. Yeah. Yeah. So the first time I ever traveled anywhere by myself for fun, um, I went to Malaysia and so I spent two weeks in Malaysia. You didn't do it by in. halves, huh? <laughs> She's yeah. like, I'm going to go far far away yeah yeah and I was I was like well you know I seem to only like traveling to very hot places Mm. that are majority Muslim states (laughs) so Mm. that seems to be like where Mm. I go Mm -hmm. um but um I did that and then I 
went to Belize and was alone on that trip too. Something that, and I, and I absolutely love solo travel. Like, I think that it is, um, a great, great way to get to know yourself and, um, man, I spend too much time with me as it is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, um, the, I think the first thing that I would encourage folks to is, um, read before you go, like do, do homework and like read before you go and read, like not only like I read like lonely planet travel guides, but, Mm -hmm. um, try to read things written by people who are from there. Yeah. Um, try not to spend all of your time reading like what tourist guides in my, in my case, like I did not need to read what other white American ladies think, um, of different places. Like that's not a great way to figure out like the vibe. Um, (laughs) no. And, and so I like to like get a sense of what, where I'm going and like what the deal is where I'm going. Um, and yeah, what it's going to be like. Yeah. Like, and have like a sense of what I want to do or like what I want to gain. But beyond that, I enjoy very, um, like very quotidian experiences, very average experiences. Like I, something that like my coworkers seem to have finally figured out about me, um, is that I'm obsessed with grocery stores and other places because Ah. I think that, I think that like what you should do when you go to a new place is you should go to the grocery store. And you should get snacks. Like, like look at the should, snacks. I mean, d- definitely get snacks. But you can learn a lot about. Uh, you can learn a lot about what um, life is like there, like <laughs> for like From, the, yeah. the the people immediately around you by where they're buying their groceries. Um, knowing someone, um, yeah, and like mm-hmm. having somebody who's local. A local, um, yeah. When I um, so. I actually went back to Morocco. I went to Spain and Morocco with a friend who was going on her first international trip ever. <laughs> and so she was like, can you come with me? And like, I, I was able to. And so it was really awesome. Um, yeah. But she um, does these like language buddy things. So she had just like met people oh, through some, cool. I don't know. It was like an app or some kind of listserv or something. A Facebook she, page even or something. Yeah. So she um, had a guy, like there was a guy in Sevilla that she had been like practicing, like keeping up on her Spanish with. Um, and he was practicing his English. And then um, we, we got there and we met up with him at like a coffee shop because ah. um, it was um, it was during Feria. And so he like didn't have to go to work. And so he's oh, like, how nice. He's like, oh, like, I'll I'll show you around. So we got a tour from a guy who is um, like, he's not from Sevilla, but his wife is from Sevilla. And so we so had he, this sort of. Yeah. Like this this insider view of like, oh, this is what the tourists like to do. But this is what we do. And sort of like see. It. Oh, and, that's very Yeah, that's really cool. And maybe we also, can. In the show notes, maybe we can um, try and find some of these like language buddy yeah. forums, fora. Yeah. And um, and so she also had a friend that she had made who was a college student um, in Tangier. And we met up with her in Tangier and she brought her roommate. And it Friends. was this like very fun experience of like between. Aww. So um, my friend and I both studied. Arabic, so like right. full like standard Arabic. I knew some Darisha, which is the local like spoken Moroccan Arabic, um, 
I know some French. Both of the young women knew some English. And so we ended up spending a day like having French, really, Arabic, English. really great conversations in like four languages and like trying, like figuring it out. And it was, um, it was amazing and it was a really great experience because it's sort of like, oh, my aunt went to school there. And so just sort of like people who are <laughs> from there. And so um, we we like I still talk to her sometimes and like she's great. Yay. And so you sort of like make these connections with people who are just like really jazzed to show you around. I find that um, I've had better luck and more fun and um a better overall experience with one exception of um, (laughs) (laughs) of um when you go to and like this definitely holds for my experience in morocco um it holds for my experience in malaysia and in belize like the places where you go and the place where you're staying um talking to the people who work there and be like, do you recommend someone? Do you recommend a tour operator? Because if it's, so I stay at small, um, like at small places like bed and breakfast or like little, like little hotels like that. Yeah. Um, and you're more likely to actually contribute to the, to the local economy economy and things like, and so, um, but also it's in their best interest to tell the like nice white American lady who, as like an active social media presence somewhere good to go and like have a, I've had that yeah, good because it, like it benefits everyone. Because if you get bad reviews, it will sink your business yeah. and like business owners are savvy about this. So you like, I'm not ever like, Oh God, oh, oh. but like you, like if you go to <laughs> the, the place, the, to like the, the people, don't there, go like the and try to like, or whatever. Leverage being an influencer. Don't do that. No, no, don't, no, don't do no, that. Can, like, like, can you hook me up or I'll give you a bad Yelp review? Don't do yeah, that. No, but, but just say like, I, um, I want to go see the like old city today uh, or like, I want to see the old city tomorrow. Can you recommend someone? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, they usually have, like, they usually know some dudes is like how it works. And they, um, they they can like hook you up and it's always yeah. it's always like it's always inexpensive there's usually like a meal involved where they like feed you and they take you and they drop you off and it's very cool and you meet people and you meet people from other places and you get us like i learned more about like canadian politics when i was in belize than i ever had before because i just happened to like keep meeting up with canadians who were there to go diving huh. and and so <laughs> Unexpected. I, I know. Yeah. So like do your homework before so that when you get there, you can kind of be freed up to experience. I think people who travel with me might get very frustrated with me because I also like I will prioritize things and, and say like, yeah, I'd like to see this, this and this. But I tend to just wander neighborhoods because yeah. I like to see and experience not necessarily the, the tourist stuff in the museum, although I, I do. I do love that. But like, I like to find favorite neighborhoods and I like to find sort of tucked away places that, um, aren't necessarily where they, you know, where a a big tour group would send you. In many cases, um, from my experience, those places you just described are also safer than like where large tour groups go. Just because because that's where all the crimes of opportunity. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And it's a big concentration of easy marks. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so I, um, I cannot recommend highly enough taking the advice of people in the hospitality industry mm-hmm. um, and just sort of like, where should I eat? Like, what do what's, I do? And what's so, your favorite restaurant? Yeah. And um, I like, so I traveled with a friend who's vegan Ooh, and where, um, where though? Cause that can make it in Morocco. We went to, okay. we were in, not as, we were in Spain and Morocco and it is so like, it was very cool to be with someone who she's like, apart from the vegan thing, I'm not picky, um, which is like, <laughs> a pl- which is a pl- which actually like kind of holds for her because if, you, okay, cool. So like it is something where what we, I would sort of explain it on her behalf and be like her, like she, these are her beliefs. And so she doesn't, it's like, she, she doesn't wear leather or do anything with animals. It's, it's sort of no animals, like totally vegetarian, no milk, nothing from an animal. Like that's her beliefs. And they're like, yeah, okay. Like that makes sense. Like, you know, cause again, they're in the hospitality industry. They encounter people who don't eat pork. They encounter people who don't eat beef. Like they like, for whatever reason that, that, right. And so, and they're like, oh yeah, well, we've got tons of delicious food that you can eat. And so by like learning like a few like vocabulary words, like I have a couple food allergies that um, could really like dampen my experience. Um, <laughs> That's a mm, choice of words. And, Good job. And so. Um, no walnuts, please. Yeah. So apart from, so like there is a way to strike a balance between the things that if you have, like there are very good reasons to not eat certain foods, but there are lots of bad reasons to not eat right. certain foods. When right. I, um, I had to do interviews. So for selecting the group that I took with me to Morocco, um, and one of the people I interviewed was like, Oh, I don't eat weird foods like onions. And like, that was a huge red flag for me because, um, mm-hmm. yeah. So, mm-hmm. so like be like, be willing to try things, like be willing yeah. to try things, learn how to try and then thank them profusely and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and like then just, ask for yeah. something else too. But right. like, that's something there, that, um, there are ways to respectfully not enjoy, not, not, and, not enjoy it, but just like be like this isn't for me and there are times that like in some circumstances like people are feeding you instead of themselves right and and so like be mindful of that that like this is that that there is there is something more substantial happening here between the two of you the person feeding you and you the person eating right it's Um, not just a transaction yeah. And like, I've, I've eaten tons of stuff that I don't like, but as long as it doesn't have like the things that I'm allergic to in it, right. like I just sort so, of suffer through. <laughs> as long as it's not actively impacting my ability to breathe, my well-being. Yeah. yeah. And like that, that's something that, um, yeah. I, I like to, um, read everything I can find. I actually like to read more after I've gone, like, I like to read books that I pick up. I buy books when I travel. That's heavy. Nerd. Um, yeah, I know. Such a nerd. But like, really like what you got to do is, um, do your homework, pay attention, like just like look or pay yeah. attention, see what's yeah. happening around you, see what people are doing. Like, 
and and eat everything. Yeah. Like those are my travel tips because being a um being a solo traveler and like being like somebody who um goes to places that I've never been before and have no real frame of reference. Um Malaysia was a jump for me because I don't speak the language. Nope. And um I had never been there before and so i was going to so malaysia is of in terms of land mass on the earth is a big country and mm-hmm. so there's the peninsula and then there's there's the islands and so they're very different places within mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. and um so when i was in penang i had which is um an island in the south china sea that was the first time that i think i've ever been in a place where every sign around me I couldn't read yeah which can be a little daunting it's a it's a bit destabilizing but it's also a um it's a I don't know it was it was fun it was an adventure um and it also you you can accomplish a lot with gestures with with gestures and then with like you know it helps if you're just like a very sweaty looking white lady they're just like <laughs> you're not from here <laughs> you look like you need help because <laughs> yeah, it's i cannot understate how humid it is <laughs> it's a tropical and, rainforest and amber this is also like when i lived like in northern california so i was not i had been Ooh. like out of the humidity game for a long time and i was just like what's happening <laughs> it's so moist <laughs> yeah, um but it, it changes the way you um, view like your own community and stuff. Like I have yeah. no problem like going to restaurants by myself now. I have no problem going to the movies by myself now. Like it yeah, is. It's, it's nice. It's a, yeah. It's a great way to um, experience things and to see other people and to um, remember that even in places where the the, the things that they do and the way that they structure their lives and their communities and and like all these various things can be very different from like my like my life like both my my life growing up in a very rural place and then like my life as an adult in um cities in, in like in cities like it's it's something that is is nice to see the sort of universal human aspects and i think yeah and i think that's a big part of our anthropology brains come yeah. out just sort of looking for the the underlying humanity of of cultural experience and i think that's that's really maybe the most important is just to remember yeah. that these are everybody is people and if you and if you are someone who has at some point in your life um been in a position where you feel like you are not you are the thing that's not like the others like that you are like the outlier whether by some aspect of your identity or like some access to resources or some degree of ability or or something like that um if you've ever felt othered yeah it's a it is um i find to be like a very liberating experience to go somewhere and see people living very different lives from my own and that 
and being okay. And just knowing that they're there and just yeah. knowing that, that like there isn't a wrong way to be a human. It's, it's something that's very grounding and, and very yeah. eye opening. And, um, I, I think that if, even if you don't, even if our listeners don't have the, like the means or the opportunity, um, to travel and go to new places, like you can have that type of experience, like in your own community. And it's just a sure. matter of, for sure. like, again, like I think my, my, my sort of rules are like read things from the people who are actually from there. So if you live in a, if you live in a city, read things or like, I try to, I'm trying to read more stuff written by people who are from Washington, DC, people who are from like communities of color, people who have been like displaced, like within the last generation from DC to learn more about this place that I now live in. Um, (laughs) And, and it's like totally free to do that. Like if, if somebody is listening to us, like through Hi. their internet access, like they can do that in their own community and you can learn mm-hmm. about other lives in the space you are. And like, again, like rely on the suggestions of, of people who know better than you um, yeah. and eat everything. Like those are Ooh, my <laughs> speaking of that. Yeah. So speaking of that and um, not needing to necessarily travel huge distances to have a cultural experience, a lot of times groups will have like cultural festivals where it's like the local, uh, like the local Armenian community or like yeah. they'll have like showcasing their culture kind of dance and food. And that's, that's sort of a, an entree. And, and those sorts of, those things are really great because, um, I've talked about this with folks before, like in terms of the, there's this, like the conversations around cultural appreciation and appropriation and sort of the politics of that. And a lot of them I've, I'm learning from folks are like very generational and, but in circumstances where they have like a public festival and it's like where you, it's, it may be around a holiday or it just is, you know, every third like weekend in August or something. Um, there's that's there's only really one third weekend in August. Oh, you mean like yearly? Never mind. Yes, I'll shut up. Yes. <laughs> I'm an idiot. You can like you go and like this is a place where people are like putting on something as an opportunity to share this with you. Yeah, to teach. And, and so it's not like you like walking up, like not you sitting down next to somebody on a bus and be like, you look like you're not from here. Tell me Tell about, me your, about your people. Justify yeah. your existence. Like that's what not do your what people eat? Yeah. It's not like this. You can go and like people are excited that you have somebody showing up. And I mean, my God, like I get excited when people come to my West Virginia day brunch for me to like, talk about Appalachia to them and like feed them, my gram- feed them my grandma's recipes. And so it's that kind of thing of like you, like you can't, you took time out of your day to come here and like get a can glimpse I, of how awesome like my culture is. Can, and can I, so can I come to brunch though? Yeah. Um, I already have one out of town guest. It's this year. Brunch is the same day. It's anybody who wants to come to my brunch. It's <laughs> oh, I'm having, a joint, <laughs> I'm having a joint West Virginia day. Um, summer solstice party. Oh, fun. So it's going to be nice because it's June 20th. Um, lit, (laughs) but, but this is, but that's a really great opportunity to learn about, um, uh, community's history and like if they have a relationship to another place, um, Mm -hmm. 
or like their relationship with their religion and those sorts of things. And they will feed you and you'll get to see dancing and like they will like they want to share this because this is an opportunity to really revel in their that aspect of their identity. And if anybody's going to feed me and tell me stories like I'm yours forever, like. Exactly. Like, and so what, like, this is so lovely. It's the best. Yeah, it is the best. And, and people will do um, like they'll and don't worry, people will have pamphlets. You can read about yeah. it. They'll be like, Here, <laughs> they'll have this. flyers. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. And and so that way and you can learn more about the people who these people are your neighbors. If this is something that is happening in your region or Locally, in your city, yeah. um, like these are people that are in your community living lives that reflect this. And, and now you know about them and like, that's cool. It's, yeah. And it's kind of like making things that made it might've been less visible to you before kind of stand out more and you'll maybe, I don't know. I think your kind of, your view of the world will be richer for it. Yeah. Eat everything. Eat everything. The dirt. Eat everything. Well, this was fun. Thanks for thanks for letting me wax poetic about eating. Eating, <laughs> eating and solo everything. travel. Also, if you're traveling uh, so by yourself, there's now. nobody there's nobody to judge you when you're like, Yes, I will eat these three entrees. You don't have to share those entrees. No, you don't. Yeah. We'll be in your ears again soon with more episodes. And mm. <laughs> Which you can find on just about any podcast platform you like. Please, Mm-mm. please don't forget our that we beseeched you at the beginning of the episode. You have been to besought. Drop some, yeah, drop us a drop us some stars in units of five, please, please. Um, and I mean, stand in your truth, but five stars would be cool, please. And thank you. And you can find us online where we post lots of stuff. It's not just things that we have done episodes about. It's just sort of stories from archaeology, anthropology, and tangentially related uh, disciplines and subjects that we put up on Facebook. And there we're at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. Yeah. And um, by following us, um, hopefully you will come in contact with lots of other really awesome sources for um, news and perspectives and other um, very and heck, cool other researchers. Other like-minded folks who yeah. also like listening to stories about humans doing human stuff. Yeah. Humans, yeah, human and friends. Yeah. And you can find all of that and our absolutely delightful merch. Um, over- Mine's coming tomorrow. I ordered <laughs> myself. <laughs> And a sweatshirt. I'm so excited. (laughs) I'm gonna model it for the internet. Oh my gosh. I'm (laughs) going to get I'm going to get a shirt. I just need to figure out how tight I want that shirt to be. (laughs) Yo yo fam, it's it is gonna be tight. T I T E tight. (laughs) And also lit. And what are what do the kids say? We should go. You can find all that on the dirtpod.com. That's our website. It's it's good. This is our outro music now. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We love you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> well, that was a weird, was a weird energy. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.